Good morning, Sterling Baptists. Good morning, Nan. Uh, it is great to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2. We are going to be continuing our journey. We are going to be continuing our journey through the series on the Holy Spirit. And I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken about the Holy Spirit and it's uh, and there might be some of you who are new and are joining us for the first time. And so I just want to give us a bit of a recap of where we've been. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we are not talking about uh, a universal energy. We're not talking about a force. We're not talking about an emotion. We're not talking about a feeling. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about a person. He has his own mind. He has his own will. He has his own emotions. And he's not a second-rate being. He's not uh, just someone who comes alongside of you now, now and again to give you some good advice on how you should tackle an issue you're facing. He's not like Google Maps, that he will just give you some direction in your life. He is not like the thought of the day that you find at the bottom of your diary, to just to inspire you just a little bit. But what we have discovered and what we are preaching about when we talk about the Holy Spirit is we are talking about God himself. He is co-eternal. And he's co-divine and co-equal with both the Father and the Son. And so that means as Christians, to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us is a wonderful privilege. And the Holy Spirit is someone who loves you. He loves you much and he has demonstrated his love to you in the way he comforts you, the way he guides you, how he strengthens you, empowers you, how he dwells within you, how he teaches you. But maybe the greatest demonstration of the Holy Spirit's love towards you is certainly the fact that he has given you Jesus. Without the Holy Spirit, you would have not been regenerated. You would not have been made alive. You would have not been illuminated in that you would have not seen and understood that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is your Savior. And he demonstrates his love in giving you and playing an intricate role in your salvation. But he doesn't just stop there. Once you are saved, he constantly points you to Jesus and makes you more and more like Jesus. And then, so that means many things for us as Christians. But what it does mean is that we can trust him. He is good. He loves you. And so he deserves our surrender. He deserves our praise. He deserves our honor. And he certainly deserves our attention. And so what we see is he has loved us by giving us Christ. But he doesn't just love the individual, but he also loves the church. And he, he does that in, in a way in which he gives the church spiritual gifts. If you are a Christian this morning, you have a spiritual gift that has been given to you intentionally by the Holy Spirit. He has thought of you. He's thought of your personality. He has thought of the plan that he has for you before the foundations of the world. And he has gifted you accordingly. And if you are a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift. And my experience is that most people have more than one. And we have been given this gift, not for ourselves, but for the glory of Christ and the building up of other believers around us in our church. And so the Holy Spirit demonstrates his love in giving us gifts that we might love others by pointing them towards Jesus through these spiritual gifts. And we spoke about 
certain specific gifts. Matt preached three sermons. On One of the sermons was on prophecy, the other on tongues, and the other on healing. And if you're wanting to find out where we stand on a church, you can catch it online on our, on our webpage or on SoundCloud. Type in Sterling Baptist and you'll be able to listen to those sermons. And I encourage you to do so. But today we're going to look at another specific gift. And uh, this gift doesn't catch all the headlines. It is certainly not up on your top of your list on what you want in for Christmas this Christmas. But yet, what I think it is, is I think it is a spiritual gift that is mission critical to what Jesus is doing in this world. It is vital. It is the need of the hour in our world today. And this gift is the gift of hospitality. I told you it wasn't on top of your lists. But I think this is a glorious gift. It is a wonderful gift that we have in our church. And, and like many gifts, um, it is, while it is a gift that certain people have, it is a command that we all need to do. So just because you might not have the gift of hospitality, we are still commanded as Christians to be hospitable people. We need to be people who practice the radical love of Jesus through hospitality. And we see this with many gifts, like the gift of evangelism, for example. There are those who have the gift of evangelism, which means God uses them in a radical, powerful way to see the lost saved. They have the incredible ability by the power of the Spirit to be able to see God moving in somebody's heart. And they go over and share the gospel. And those people, more often than not, seem to give their lives to Christ. But when I do it, I get a door slammed in my face. But this person has a wonderful gift. But yet, we as Christians though we might not be gifted in evangelism, are still commanded to go do so. Does that make sense? And the same is with hospitality. There are men and women in this church who have the wonderful gift of hospitality, who have eyes to see the person who's standing out there by themselves, across the room, all by themselves, and have the courage to go over and make them feel welcome. They have the ability to be able to walk into a group and unite a group of strangers and suddenly they feel a part of something. To make the outsider who's feeling a bit out suddenly to feel at home and a part of something important. A vital gift. But yet we are all called to be hospitable people. And we see this in Hebrews 13 verses 1 and 2. It should be on the screen behind you. It says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. And we love that angels part, but we forget that we must not neglect to show hospitality. We see in Romans 12 verse 13, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek and seek to show hospitality. And we'll look at a few more verses a little later. But I think that hospitality is one of the most important tasks of the church, our church, as individuals, in order for us to redeem, again, the credibility of the gospel in our age, which is a big statement. But why is it so mission critical? Why is it so important? Well, unless you've been living in a hole for a number of years, the world seems to be falling apart in unprecedented ways recently, doesn't it? At least in my lifetime, this seems the most tumultuous time that is since, I've been, since I've been alive. Things have seemed to be going a bit crazy. We've had COVID, we've had lockdowns, we've had riots that have cost billions and hundreds of people who died in those riots. We've got load shedding like never before. And just on top of that, Russia decides to uh, um, go against Ukraine and now there's talk of nuclear weapons being involved. And that's just the headlines. 
But yet in the craziness of this world, I am convinced that what has happened is that there has been created in this craziness a hatred toward the other. There have been hard lines that have been drawn in our culture of an us versus them mentality of animosity and, and hatred to the people that don't necessarily fall into the us category. And psychologists tell us that when we draw these hard lines of us versus them, what happens is we stop giving resources of empathy and of uh, compassion to those who aren't like us. We give more to those who are like us and we give less to people who are different to us. And so what happens is that we can draw rigid lines of them and us and we can demonize those who look very different to us. And the danger is of the church is that as the world seems to be losing its marbles and going crazy, that we can be a people who become huddled up, get into those of us who look like us, shut our doors tight. Unless you look like us, you can't come in. And we start to push all those who are different to us away. But friends, I want to say that Christ does not allow us to have such a mentality. He doesn't allow us to treat others who are different to us in philosophies and in beliefs and the way we look to be able to treat them in such a way. He says so strongly for us and famously to us in Luke 6 verses 32 to 36. Jesus says these words. He starts off with a couple of questions for us and he says this. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And here comes Jesus with the most radical kind of love. He says, but love your enemies. I know we've heard that a lot, but that is radical. Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful and so jesus comes to the christian and says no no christian you are not allowed to draw hard lines you're not allowed to demonize those who are different to you you need to love your enemies you need to Pray for those who persecute you. You need to be different to the world. And my hope for us as a church today is to show you that our role as Christians, as a church, is to practice hospitality. Practicing the radical love of Jesus. That's what it means to practice hospitality. And hospitality is going to be the most important thing that we can do as a church in order to weave the gospel into our city. If we are to fulfill our, great, our, our, our mission statement as a church, and for those of you who don't know what it is, it is to fill the city of East London with the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ. If we are to fill the East London with the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ, we're going to do it through hospitality. If we have Celebration Sunday type services three times on the Sunday, we will have 1,200 people in this room on a Sunday. That is but a drop in our city. But the gospel is going to advance and go forwards in our city through our homes, through workplaces, on playgrounds, and in sports clubs. 
where hospitality is demonstrated as we show the scandalous, and it is scandalous, love of Jesus. Because here's the truth. Very few of you are going to be able to stand up in this pulpit and preach like Matt Johnson. Very, very few of you are going to sit behind their keyboard and sing like you test and lead worship like him. But every single one of you can show hospitality. You can show the scandalous love of Jesus through hospitality. And so what are we going to do this morning? How are we going to go about it is I'm going to tell you what hospitality is very briefly. And then we're going to look at why it matters, why we are called to do it, and then how we practice it. That was just for the A-type people in the room that like to know where we are going. So what is hospitality? Hospitality is simply this. It is loving the outsider, loving the stranger. It comes from two Greek words. Uh, it comes from the Greek word philos, which is a non-erotic type love. And it comes from another word called xenos, where we get the word xenophobia from, which is the fear of the, uh, fear of the stranger or the outsider. And so it is literally to love the outsider, to love the stranger, to love those who are different to us. Uh, Joshua Jip, uh, who wrote a book called Saved by Faith and Hospitality, defines it like this. He says, hospitality is the act or process where, uh, whereby the identity of the stranger is transformed into that of guests. It's a really profound calling and command by Christ on us as a church that we need to create spaces where that don't necessarily exist in our culture, where those who are on the outside, who are pushed out, demonized, marginalized, villainized, and feared, are suddenly through hospitality able to come in. It's when the outsider becomes the insider. The enemy becomes the friend. The stranger becomes the brother or sister. It's the beautiful imagery of what biblical hospitality is. And I hope, as I say that, that might sound good to most of your ears. I realize it might not to everyone. But it sounds, I hope that sounds good to your ears. But this beautiful and sounds great is particularly hard to do. And it's hard for many reasons, which we will get to. But it is hard to do. And so, therefore, why should we do it? Because we don't tend to do it. Well, what is the motive behind it? Why are we called to do it? Because I've made some bold statements this morning saying hospitality is mission critical. It's critical to the mission of Jesus. It is central to what we should do as we practice as Christians. But is it really? And I think it is because hospitality, and this is important for us this morning, hospitality, Christian hospitality flows from the divine hospitality that you and I have received in Christ. Let me say that again. Christian hospitality flows from the divine hospitality that you and I have received in Jesus. You see, one of the reasons why you and I don't practice hospitality as we should is because as the church, and I'm talking about the big church, a universal church, is that there has crept in within it a mentality that kind of thinks that we deserve to be Christian. There's this mentality that we deserve to be the insider, that something within us was so good that God looked upon us and loved us because of that good thing. There's this mentality to think that we kind of are doing God a bit of a favor of being Christians and following him. We are being good and we're doing him something that's nice for him. And as a result, what that does is it creates within us 
a feeling that I don't really have to be hospitable to the outsider because I kind of deserve to be the insider. But my friends, this kind of thinking is completely wrong. It is anti-gospel. It's different to what has happened. We ourselves were once the outsider. We were once enemies of God, as Romans 5 says. We were partaking in the kingdom of darkness, lost, outcasts, but not just reluctantly wishing that we could be in, not uh, hoping that we could, but never could make it ourselves. No, but we were enjoying the kingdom of darkness, living it up, living in our sin, living. So, excuse me, living in our, in our evil and our wickedness. But yet God in his grace and mercy that we have sung about this morning looks upon us in that state and he loves us. And he leaves the glories of heaven as Christ comes down to our earth. He leaves the comforts of the, of the heaven. He leaves the, the praises of heaven. He leaves the pre- presence of the Father. And he comes to this world and dwells among us in our sin and he lives a life that you and I could not live and he would die on the cross and bear that ugliness and sin and shame and wickedness that we had done upon himself and the wrath of God that was deserved for us that he could have wiped us out with he does not he pours it upon his own son Jesus and Jesus bears that And he will die on the cross in our place, taking our punishments of death. And three days later, he will rise again, defeating the grave. Amen? And so this is the the beauty of the gospel, is that we have had our sin removed through what Christ has done for on the cross. But friends, even it goes further than that, that the Holy Spirit would then come and he would point us to Jesus. He would awaken us. He would help us to see with clarity that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that we are in sin. It is through the work of the Spirit that we are awakened to know that Christ is our Savior. And He, as a gift, as Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, He gifts us with the faith that we need in order to believe. And we believe in this Jesus. Friends, this is the radical nature of God's divine hospitality, that this faith that we have been given suddenly creates within us an ability to be able to commune with God, to know Him, to delight in Him, to to no longer be enemy, but to be a son and daughter, to no longer be an outsider, to be an insider, to, to no longer be a part of the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of light and as how we said to no longer be a stranger but a friend this is the radical hospitality that you and i have been showing and it is through this hospitality that we have received when we grasp the nature of it that we can commune with god because what he has done then we can therefore go and be hospitable to the outsider because we want to were outsiders and not deserved of being an insider. And so we can love those who are different to us, love those who think differently to us, and we can be hospitable people motivated by the gospel. But not only are we motivated by the gospel, but we also are motivated by the example that Christ sets for us. We are told as Christians to be imitators of Jesus. We see this In Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, Remember that you were 
at, at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth. Uh, let me read that again. Remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world, but now in Christ you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He shows he by the blood of Jesus we are brought in. But also we are to be imitators of God in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus used hospitality as one of his primary ways to, in which he he ministered to other people. In the Gospels, we see three times a phrase that says, the Son of Man came. Uh, the three times it's used with a different type of ending. And, the, and we see in Luke 19, verse 10, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his heart. And Matthew 20, verses 28 says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. That was the turning work that he made possible our salvation, the hospitality of Christ shown there. And then in, 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 in Luke 7, verses 34, it says this, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend, as we were speaking about this morning uh, through Lawrence, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was his methodology that made it all possible. Jesus' strategy was to have long meals into the evenings, discipling and evangelizing to the lost with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Just enjoying them, hearing their story, and pointing to himself as he sat and he chatted with them. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see a period of nine chapters where we see ten different stories of Jesus sitting down, eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors as he ministered to them over food. This wonderful heart of Christ. And, and even when we see he teach, when he teaches, I mean, he's not eating and drinking, he's often using food as an illustration. And it was to such a degree that, that, that the, tax, the, the Pharisees would come along and say, that Jesus had excess of that. He was a drunkard and a glutton. Now, he wasn't a drunkard and a glutton, but they just saw him all the time eating and drinking with others. And so they tried to uh, falsely uh, accuse him of things because of who he was hanging out with. And, for, and they said he had excess of it. So Jesus' excess, and then for those of you listening online, I'm putting that in inverted commas, he excess of his drinking and eating was an extent and demonstration of his excess of grace to those who were very different. Jesus uses in his ministry meals to enact grace upon communities that hadn't experienced grace, to enact a community to those who are on the outsider, on the outs, to act hope to those who are hopeless. He used it as part of his mission. And our culture creates very different hard lines of hospitality. If you, if you want to be a part of our hospitality, culture says that you have to look like us, believe like us, do things like us in order that you might feel a part of the inn. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did. They came up with extra laws up and above the Torah. And so what they would do, particularly around food, which the hospitality is a huge part of food, isn't it? 
is that what they would do is they would up and above the Torah make extra laws on how you need to eat and what you need to eat and how you should go about it. And what it meant was it was super expensive and therefore excluded many from just being able to follow the laws of the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees created a new culture or new, a new group of people which they would label as sinners simply because they could not afford and have the time to do what the Pharisees did. These sinners, these hard lines drawn in their culture. And what Jesus does through his hospitality, he comes in like Quentin de Kock playing against um, uh, Zimbabwe and just starts hitting that for six. He break, that's a very specialized illustration, I'm sorry. He comes in like a wrecking ball and he smashes the hard lines that these Pharisees has done. And he says to those who are hopeless, he says to those who are outcasts, he says that to those who are burdened, he says to them, he says, come to me all who labor and heavy labors, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A wonderful act of hospitality. Jesus uses that to bring in the outside of him. One of my um, habits as a preacher, when I get the opportunity to preach, I, what I do is I treat myself to a Seattle coffee. Mine is currently sitting there, there. So I'm still continuing this habit. And about a year ago, I was preaching. So I headed off uh, to Seattle in the morning before church and I rocked up. I was ordering my coffee. And like I normally do, I look at the barista and say, hey, how are you doing? And then carry on looking at my order. And uh, the barista, being quite a chirpy chap, said, no, I'm okay, which I was expecting. But he went, but my grandmother has just died, which I had, was not expecting. That's not what you, when you ask someone how you're doing when you're not really listening, that's not what you're hoping you're going to get back, right? And so I was a bit shocked and taken back. And as, as I was about to go, okay, come settle in, let's hear this. He, uh, he said, no, but I'm, I'm not really sad. My family's sad, but I'm not sad. I didn't really like her very much. Um, now I'm extra taken back. That's certainly what not I was not expecting. And so I kind of give a bit of an awkward giggle. Um, didn't know how to respond to that. Take my slip, pay for it. And as I'm going to I'm sorry for you about your grandmother and I leave. And I preach and as I was driving home, he's on my mind because again, I'm a bit shocked and taken back by what he said. And I felt the Lord pop into my heart the question that I should ask him. And it's not a question I'd normally ask someone who has lost their grandmother, but he didn't particularly care, it seemed. So I thought it was appropriate, but close enough to home that it would make an impact and we could maybe start a discussion. And that was the question, where do you think your grandmother's gone? And so I headed past Seattle on the way home and he wasn't there. And I, I had him on my heart for a few days and I kept on going back until he was there. And I ordered my coffee and I said, hey, where, hey, Emmanuel, have you had the funeral yet? I don't want to dive in straight away with the question. And we got going and I asked the question. And uh, as we were talking, we started talking about faith and where life was and all this kind of stuff. But the problem was he was working. And so as I was standing there drinking my coffee, he was kept on getting interrupted by people all the time. And I just felt that this conversation wasn't really going where I needed to go because we had good five, 10 minutes of breaks before we can continue. And so half an hour later, I finished my coffee. We really haven't gotten to the heart of the issue. And I can see that this is getting a bit much for everyone, including me. And so I asked him, hey, do you want to go out for me? What's on me? I'll take you out. Let's go have lunch. Let's discuss these things further. When is your day off? Let me take you out for lunch and I will pay for it. And he said, well, hey, cool, free meal. Keen to do that. 
Thursday is my day off. I said, cool, let's do it. I'll pick you up for lunch. So I went to his house, picked him up, and we headed off to Ganubi to a place called Shelly's Coffee Shop. Um, there, there's a really fan group of Ganubians that sit in the corner there. It's been way too much time there. I know because I'm there. Um, and uh, they were enjoying, uh, we went up into the place and he said, Joe, I've never been here before. I've never even seen the side of Ganubi. He works in Ganubi and has lived in Montpellier for three years, but has never gone three kilometers to see the beautiful side of Ganubi. Chuck me. And as we sat down and we, we started to chat and talk, we spoke for about two hours. And as we spoke, I got to know about his family. I got to know where he was born and where he grew up. And I, I, got to, I got to learn about his ambitions and goals and how he ended up being a barista and how his family and his parents were particularly disappointed that this is where he has landed compared to his other siblings and cousins. I got to learn about a heartache that he had recently experienced, that his girlfriend had ran off with his stuff the day, a couple of weeks before that we went out for some coffee. I got to learn about how he, he grew up in a Christian home, but then in his late teens converted to Islam and stayed there for many years until he started hearing rumors about joining ISIS until he ran away and left that. And I got to hear about his goals and where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do and how he had kind of secluded himself from his colleagues and how he didn't like to spend time with them. And, and he was worried about an overstepping relationship and how they wanted to be more friendly and he just liked to be by himself. And in the midst of that, we got to talk about the gospel and apply that to his life. We got to speak about justification by faith and how it's not based on your works, but rather by faith in Jesus alone that you make it to eternity. We got to speak about the deity of Jesus and how Christ wasn't just a, a good man, but he was in God himself and how he had come and died for him particularly. And we spoke about these things. Now, he never gave his life to Jesus that morning. But I was so certain of the Spirit being with me and the love of the Lord pursuing that young man. I was convinced that the Lord wanted his heart. And I tell you that because I want you to see that as I tried at the workplace to have this conversation, we could get nowhere. Standing there trying to drink coffee, he's busy. We could never get to the heart of the issue. It was all surface level stuff. And we could never truly get down to knowing him and getting the gospel to his heart. But when we had stopped and put some food before us, had a cup of coffee with a great bit of you, we were able to get to the heart of the issue and talk about this real Jesus that had existed. And I wonder what East London would be like if we as a church took seriously hospitality, when we would just sit down and hear people's stories and share the love of Jesus that we have experienced. What would happen to people's hearts if they would be gripped and changed in doing so. My friends, I want to I say to you that you aren't too sinful to be used by God. You aren't too sinful to be used by God. But may I say, you might be just too busy. You might be too busy. Do you have in your schedule, in your life, a place where the Holy Spirit can lead and guide you so that you might be able to show the scandalous love of Jesus through some hospitality with people? Or don't you? Because aren't we glad that through Jesus, he crossed the boundaries? come to us, that he wasn't too busy to make it for us, that he 
considered and looked upon us and saw us valuable, even though we were full of sin and that he would extend his heart to you. And if that is what Jesus has done for us, who are we as followers of Jesus to turn inwardly and not love outwardly? You see, I want to argue this morning that hospitality is not secondary to something we do when we have time, but it is central to our Christian walk. We have to do it. So how do we do it? I've got 15 minutes. How do we do it? How do we show this walk? Well, the first is we are to do it on the inside. We are to love each other. Now, what I mean by that is don't hang out with your best mates. Remember, hospitality is loving the stranger. And though we all attend SBC, we call this our home, and your brothers and sisters in Christ, there are people in this room this morning that you do not know. That you don't know their stories, you don't know where they're from, you don't know how they came to know Jesus. You might know their names, you might not know their names. But to show hospitality, we are to start and love one another well by taking each other out, eating in each other's homes, getting to know each other's stories and letting us unite around Jesus. We see this in our text in Hebrews 13 verses 1 and 2. It starts off with, let brotherly love continue. And do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. Or in 1 Peter 4, verses 8 and 9, a verse that we love, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. We love that. We like to put that on t-shirts and mugs. But we forget about the next part. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I'm so grateful that Peter decided to put that last bit in without grumbling. Because why does he do that? Because the reality is when the music fades and the preacher finally ends his sermon and you get to go out to be out to hang out with Christians, some Christians can be annoying, can't they? Not you guys, the other services. But as I say that, as I say that, you know, there might even be a picture of a Christian that pops in your mind immediately. He's, he or she's there. But Paul, Peter says, no, no, you need to do it without grumbling. You know the feeling when you've had people over for, for hospitality, you had them over for supper, and they've been around for a bride. You're like, thank you, Lord, that they've gone home. St. Augustine is rumored to have a sign above his dinner table that said, he who speaks evil about an absent man or woman is not welcome at the table, at this table. Hospitality can be hard. I mean, that's why we have to cling to the gospel and what Jesus has shown for us. But here's the thing about Christian fellowship, as we demonstrate hospitality to people we don't know, is that in Jesus, we have something incredible that no other people have. With, regardless of what uh, race or culture, what language, what generation, what social class you might find yourself in, what hobbies or where you're from, or what country you're from, it does not matter what you are. We all are united beautifully in Jesus. And what we have is something glorious. We have Christ, united at the foot of the cross, part of one body, one family, brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so you might not know what to chat to those people about. You might have nothing in common, but you do have Christ in common. And so it means that I can have relationships with people who I'm very different to and yet feel a brotherly affection toward them. Josh Becker, who was here for NCO last week, some of you would have seen him, big dreads. Josh and I get to work together quite regularly. We are different. We don't look alike, do we? He's got dreadlocks, I've got short hair. He's closer, I'm English. 
And yet Josh and I, though different, he's got all the kids. I have younger kids. Man, there's this love toward him that I have. Why? Because of who he is in Christ. We have Jesus in common. And so you don't have to fear what you're going to talk about. You've got Jesus to talk about. You've got something to unite you, something that I have with Josh that I do not have with relatives that do not know Jesus. Because I have, we, have, we are united in Christ. There's this wonderful passage in Romans uh, 15, verse 7. It's a short little phrase that I've skipped over many times as I've read it. But it struck me the other day in a podcast that I was listening to. It said, welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. Wow. It's striking, isn't it? Think about it. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Gives us a great picture of how we should love one another. When we were hopeless, Christ gave us hope. When we were outsiders, he made us insiders. When we were burdened, he gave us rest. When we were backslidden, Christ welcomed us in with loving arms again. And so we are to demonstrate that kind of radical love to one another. As we walk and gather together in big services like this, we are to love one another like Jesus has loved us. Welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed us. You see, the danger is, church, that we can become people who hold to the gospel, the right gospel, preach it, proclaim it, teach it. We fight for it, and we should. But we hold to the gospel, but we never enact out the gospel. And what I mean by that is that we can preach rightly justification by faith. But then we can expect perfect people to walk through those doors and we place a burden on them that they have to be perfect in order to be a part of our gatherings. We can talk about how there's grace in Jesus, but yet we never extend grace to the backslider who walks through our doors. We can talk about how Christ came to heal the brokenhearted, but yet we don't want to deal with anyone's issues when they come through those doors. We can talk about how there's forgiveness in Jesus alone, but never extend forgiveness to others around us. We can have a right gospel that we hold and preach, but we must not be just hearers of the word, preachers of the word, but we must do it. There needs to be a culture of the gospel. And how does that take place? Through hospitality, of loving each other and welcoming each other as Christ has welcomed us. And I hope as you hear all of this, that you, like me, I'm struck by the importance of the spiritual gift. There are those of you in this room this morning who have the gift of hospitality. You able to make people feel welcome like I can't. You're able to bring the outsider in like many can't in this room. And I want to say, if you have this gift, you are vital to this body. We need you. You are vital in making us better and more welcoming like Jesus. You get to be much of Jesus for us as a church. And we love you and we hope you have it. But in our hope for those of you who don't have the gift, that you feel stirred within your hearts to love one another and welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. My last thing I want to look at is how do we do it? We are to uh, do hospitality to the outsider. Have you ever seen one of those tables that, um, it's a large table that, a small table that you kind of extend? You can pull it out and then you've got those extra like slats that you just slide in. They never really work as well as they seem to work. And you get it in and you suddenly go from a table of four to a table of like eight. And I, and I want to ask you this morning, do you think Jesus' table was full? 
Do you think it's done? I think if we had to ask Jesus this question, he would be saying, no, my table is not full. We need to get more. Let's stretch this table out more. I have more people that need to be coming around that are on the outside who need to be insiders. I've got more people who need to feast on my grace. And I think if we would not only do this to one another, but do this to our neighbors and to our colleagues that don't know Christ, we would be blown away by how often people would come to know Jesus through really good hospitality. We cannot truly understand who would be converted through hospitality. And one of my favorite stories of hospitality that I stumbled across was about a lady, a lady called Rosaria Butterfield. She was an incredibly liberal leaning person. She was a professor of most postmodern studies. She was a lesbian in a lesbian relationship. And uh, she really hated and could not stand evangelical Christians. Uh, and at that time, when this all took place, she, uh, there was this uh, movement happening called Promise Keepers who were filling stadiums with Christians, promising hope and singing Christian songs. And as she saw it, she despised it because she thought they were promising hope, but actually they were creating a sense of hopelessness for so many. And so she writes this article, it's scathing of, of, about the movement, and she po- it goes into the newspaper and it was controversial, as you can imagine. And she receives letters uh, of two different camps. One was fan mail going, give it to the man, show him what he got. Well done. And the other was hate mail, you everything wrong with this world. And uh, she just kept on receiving these. Until one day, she receives a letter from an evangelical, Presbyterian, reformed, uh, conservative pastor. And she gets this uh, mail and she goes, "Uh oh, here's one of the hate ones. But as she starts to read it, it's different. It stumps her. And this person didn't deal in stereotypes. He saw through her and saw her humanity. He acknowledges some of the truth in some of her arguments and he gets underneath her presuppositions and reframes them and uh and then she he deals with her really graciously and so she gets it she doesn't know what to do with it so she takes it and scrumples it up and throws it in the news and the dustbin but as she's trying to work it kind of like haunts her and so she picks it up and she reads it again and to her horror he has invited her to dinner to chat about these truths further And she doesn't know what to do with that invite. And she talks to a colleague and the colleague says, well, you're writing a book about religion and what's bad with evangelical Christians. This will give you an opportunity to be on the front line in the trenches. You have some wonderful stories to be able to talk about their hypocrisy and how bad they are, et cetera, et cetera. And so for this reason, for the sake of research, she musters up the courage and she goes to dinner with this pastor. And she arrives at his house and uh, she talks of how she, when she walked through the door, dread just fell over her. And it's not long that to her surprise, she is quite shocked that how much respect and love that they are demonstrating to her. They had considered her and who she was. She had very uh, specific dietary requirements that she had chosen to eat and they had made sure the meal suited her perfectly to that. That she knew she had some views on the climate and so they had turned off their aircon and the heater, et cetera, et cetera. And so while they felt uncomfortable, she felt com- comfortable in her convictions. And immediately as they were talking and, and going on, her defenses fall down and this is what she says. She says this, something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd and I became friends. 
They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We spoke openly about sexuality and politics. They, they did not act if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in such a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sins in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, but full of mercy. Because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was a safe place to be their friend. This was a friendship without agenda. The threshold of their life was like no other. The threshold of their life brought me to the foot of the cross. And two years of hospitality and genuine friendship meant this person, which many of us would have considered lost and gone, had come to know Jesus. And she's now married to a pastor with four children. The work of hospitality. Remarkable. And I wonder what would happen if we would treat those who are vastly different to us and love them as such a hospitality. I'll end off with this quote. Alan Hirsch writes, he says, if every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around the table once a week to neighbors, we would eat our way into the kingdom of God. That's a strategy I can get behind. You know, when that baked potato comes out, the Holy Spirit comes out as well. There's, the Lord works and moves. And I want to say to you that we make this too complicated. We overthink it. We need to go on courses of apologetics and degrees and we need to study all the arguments. No, but my friends, Christ's model for us was just to eat with people and share the love of Christ with them and to be ourselves. That I want to say to you that you have this week, I promise you, you have 21 opportunities, including snacks and coffees, to have a place where you can create hospitable places where you can demonstrate and practice the radical love of Jesus to someone. You got that there. You don't have to preach like Matt. You don't have to lead the te- uh, worship like in Tesco. You don't have to act weird like me. All you have to do is love and listen over some hospitality, and you will be practicing and demonstrating the love of Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, I am so grateful this morning as we talk about hospitality that we are reminded how you loved us in such a way. And I know, Lord, that this is difficult for us to consider loving outsiders and loving people who are different to us. But I pray that you would birth within our hearts a passion to be hospitable in light of the fact that you have been hospitable to us. May we not neglect the opportunity of communing with you, but may we take every opportunity, I pray, to commune with others and point them to you as well. Stir this within us. Help us to get this right. May we extend much grace to one another. May we love each other well. For your glory in the city, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good morning, everyone. There's coffee outside. Um, Enjoy some fellowship.